I'm excited to share with you this morning some things that God has put on my heart. Um, but first off, I want to say that it is a great burden and almost a turmoil to prepare a message that is, is a worthy offering to God. And our pastor every Sunday gets up and prepares and gets up and preaches and teaches us what God's word says. And I know for myself, I at times take that for granted. But when I get up here and I prepare and I make that preparation, it is a burden. And I thank you for doing that for us every Sunday. Um, it's definitely something that we need as members to acknowledge, to remember how much of a burden it is because this is God's truth. This is life or death. And so um, this morning, I wanted to talk to you about um, something that God's put on my heart, and it's found in the book of Second Chronicles. We're going to be in the book of Second Chronicles, and so you can feel free to turn in your Bibles to Second Chronicles. And it's, uh, it's kind of an obscure passage, but it's something that um, in student ministry, we have been going over the book of Second Chronicles through the life of King Asa which was the great-grandson to King Solomon, the wisest, richest man ever lived. And so he's the great-grandson of King Solomon, and the legacy that was given to Asa was a legacy that was against God. His father did not choose to follow God in his life, in his reign as king. His grandfather, Rehoboam, Solomon's son, did not choose to follow God. At the end of his life, there started to be a passing from choosing to worship God to a position of letting these, the, these inhabitants of Canaan to build high places, to build altars, to carve these Asherah poles, to worship these deities that were false. And he knew it, but they let it happen. And so Asa is born into this legacy, but Asa chooses early on to follow God. He chooses to tear down these high places, to renounce the idolatry that was around him. And um, he, he did two key things. He, he did take a stand against that idolatry. He had a battle that he had that we're going to be discussing that he had to go before God. He also, at, through this battle that was critical for his area, the, the prophet of that day, he was able to encourage Asa. And Asa brought back teaching and prayer to the area of Judah. And so he has a great legacy that he built, but that was not what was given to him. And where we find him is at the beginning of this major critical battle in 2 Chronicles 14. You can put that right up there on the screen. The scripture is going to be on the screen. You can follow along as well as reading your Bibles if you choose. And um, in, in the middle of this battle, before the battle begins, Asa goes before the Lord. And this is the verse that we're going to talk about this morning. It's verse 11. Now, just to set up what is against Asa, he has approximately 580,000 foot soldiers, and the king that he's going up against has a million foot soldiers, 
and about 300 to 30,000 chariots. There's a little discrepancy in the Arabic, but that's not a big deal because basically the chariots of that day were like tanks. It's like having a whole fleet of tanks and he's about to run over this foot army. And so Asa comes before the Lord and he stands before the Lord and he cries out to God in verse 11. And it says, Then Asa cried out to the Lord his God, Lord, there is no one besides you to help the mighty and those without strength. Help us, Lord our God, for we depend on you. And in your name, we have come against this large army. Lord, you are our God. Do not let a mere mortal hinder you. Let's open this morning in prayer. Let's ask the Lord to prepare our hearts. God, I just come before you right now and pray that you would calm our hearts, that you would remove distractions, Lord. Lord, I pray that it would be your words that would be spoken today, that it would be your truth that would be clearly taught. And Lord, I pray that you would open our minds, open our ears, and allow the Holy Spirit to, to choose to teach us and tell us where we need to change. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. In your name I pray. Amen. Um, and so tonight's, or to this morning's title, um, usually I speak at night because it's with the students, so that's just a natural thing that falls off my tongue. Don't worry about it. Um, to, this morning's title is called Open-Handedicity. That is a made-up word. Don't, don't freak out. You were not supposed to know how to spell this. This is a made-up word. You can go to the next slide um, because this is how it's broken down, open-handed Nicity. Nicity is basically something you put on the end of a noun to communicate this is the way this noun works. Basically, that's what it is. So tonight, this, morning's, this morning's message is open-handedness, and it's going to be here in this prayer of surrender from Asa. So the first part of the prayer says, Lord, there is no one besides you. That word Lord is Yahweh. That is God's personal name. It's his personal name. It is the name that communicates that he is the self-existent one. And he is a personal God. So many people in life think that God is just up there. He's the old man in the sky. He's the guy who wreaks down vengeance upon you when you step a little bit out of line. That, that, is, that is not God. God is a personal God. He wants to have a relationship with you. A personal, intimate relationship with you. And it is communicated, this, this name of God is communicated over 2,700 times in the Old Testament. That's huge. God wants us to know that he's personal. But it says, Lord, there is no one besides you. There is no one besides you. It, this communicates the lordship and the sovereignty of God. Asa is acknowledging that sovereignty even though Asa is surrounded by God, surrounded by these inhabitants, even his own people. Again, he, he's fighting an uphill battle. He, he had to change the dynamic of the people around him because his own people were worshiping other gods. They were following idolatry. And so he acknowledges the sovereignty of God. Proverbs 1.7 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. That fear of the Lord, like Jim was talking about, it is not being afraid of God. Yes, respecting him, being fearful of the power that he has. But a fear of the Lord has to do with walking 
in humility. It has to do with walking in a way that you live recognizing that God is God and that you are not. You are not the God of your life. God is God and you are not. But yet how many times do we make decisions, choices, commitments without considering God? We say, oh, I'm going to do this. This is what I need to do. This is what is going to make me happy. This is what God wants for me. We say that a lot, don't we? But yet we don't really actually come to God and say, God, what is, what is, your, what is your purpose for this? What do you want? I want to be surrendered to your sovereignty. And so Asa makes it very clear, Lord, there is no one beside you. There's no one besides you. And he says, Lord, there's no one besides you to help the mighty and those without strength. Now, this is us. He puts us in there. You didn't know you were there in Second Chronicles, but you were there. You're between the mighty and those without strength. We all fit within that category. All of us. And especially our perception of ourselves fits within that category. Some people who struggle more with pride or self-confidence, they put themselves on the top. Yeah, I'm mighty. Oh, I got that. I'm good. Yeah, no, that's not... That's not what we want to communicate, but again, that's how we intend look at ourselves, or we have this low is me, woe is me, self-loathing, no one loves me, and it's down at the bottom. However, most of us would probably feel comfortable saying that we're in the middle. We're kind of in the middle. We're, we're okay. We're in the middle. And except what God communicates about our condition is that you are totally and entirely depraved. We don't like to hear that. It's not fun. That's that not the tickling ears part of a sermon, you know, that maybe a story. That would be good to insert there. But, but no, we are depraved. That means that we are evil. From the moment of our birth, we are bent on ourselves, pleasing me, what I want, what I want to accomplish, what's going to make me happy, not what is going to please God? In fact, in Romans 3.10, it says, as it is written, there is none, no one that is righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks after God. That means your body, your mind, your emotions, your will has no desire for God at all, except God giving you that desire, putting that inside of you. It is Christ in me that gives me a desire to want Christ, to seek God. It does not just happen. It's not just there by, by, by a naturalness, but like the song said this morning that we sang, even though my sins are great, and every single one of ours is great because in God's eyes, in God's sins on that scale, we're down here and lower. But though my sins are many, his mercy is more. We are not with, is as we live this life following Christ, we have to make a decision to self-examine. We have to make a decision to self-examine. 2 Corinthians 13, 5 communicates, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not know, or do you yourselves not recognize that Jesus is in you? 
unless you fail the test. And so the best illustration to look at examining yourself, a lot of us do this all the time. We look in these things, right? And forgive me if I'm flashing because the reflection of the lights and everything. But this is a mirror. Now, this is a very small mirror. At our house, we have a very long mirror. Okay, it goes about, about down to here and up to here. So you can get to see a full body length. That's not the mirror that we enjoy when it comes to looking at our life. That's not what we want. We don't want the full-length mirror because the full-length mirror shows all of the imperfections. Okay, let's be real. It shows all the imperfections. And this is the mirror we like. We like to say, oh, yes, that part is good. Let me shine that. Oh, social media, let me post about this because this part of me is awesome. That's how we view. That's how we view ourselves. We like to examine ourselves based on what we determine is our standard, not what God determines as our standard. We don't like the full-length view of ourselves, but we are called to examine ourselves. Lord, there is no one besides you to help the mighty and those without strength. Lord, I am without strength, but this process of self-examining, it has to be intentional. You're not going to want to do it. You're not going to like to do it. And to live a life that is open, live a life that is genuine before others, you have to do it daily, moment by moment, moment by moment. And so he communicates because, you see, when the more mature we are on this scale, as we look at things and as we look at our life and we self-examine, the more that we look at ourselves and the more the more mature that we are, we see ourselves as less strength. We see the real person without Christ. And it causes us to have an understanding of what God is in our life, that he is Lord and there's no one besides him. And so Asa communicates, Lord, there's no one besides you to help the mighty and those without strength. To help the mighty and those without strength. Help us, Lord, our God, for we depend on you. Now, this, this is a communication of dependence versus self-reliance. Okay, now we're about to go all the way back from Chronicles back to the beginning. Okay, in the beginning, there were two people in the garden. God made them perfect without sin. And yet when they chose to sin, when they chose to turn against God and choose themselves, this is what they did. This was the reaction here in Genesis chapter 3, verse 10. It says, and he said, this is Adam speaking, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Now, what does that have to do with self-reliance, Austin? We're, we're completely not there. Well, let me share with you what I see here when it comes to self-reliance. When we are supposed to have dependence on God, that means we are supposed to rely on God to fill all aspects of our life to complete us. But what Adam did is he chose himself, he chose selfishness, he chose sin, he chose the opposite of what God commanded. 
And when he sinned, his eyes were open. He realized that he was naked spiritually, emotionally, physically before God. And because he was afraid of being in that condition, he didn't want to be open. He didn't want to be laid bare before God. He wanted to keep these things hidden. And so he and Eve, they made fig clothes and covered themselves and they hid from the presence of God. They masked, they lied, they relied on themselves to make it right. But what really is the reality about hidden things? We know there is a truth about hidden things. Hebrews 4.13 makes it very clear that no creature is hidden from him, but all things. What about my internal thoughts? Yep, that's encountered. Uh, what about um, what I said behind that person's back, my coworker or my spouse or my children or my friend? Yes, that's included. All things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. We must give an account. I mean, let that sink in that Everything must be accounted for by the one who made us. That is so, that is such a weight, and I am so thankful that I don't have to account for that because Jesus did my accounting. But if you've not chosen to follow Jesus, you still owe this debt. You still owe. This, these things that you keep hidden, this sin in your life, it must be paid for. It must be accounted for. And so when we, when we choose to rely on ourselves, it is really what we lean into. And so when you look at Adam and Eve, when you look at yourself, what sin do you rely on? That's the self-reliance part instead of dependence on God. What sin do you rely on to replace what only God should provide. Because we use sin to fill our life for what we are not depending on God to give us. What we do not trust God to give us. And we lean in that direction. And there is a sin in each of our lives that we lean into. And I didn't know if I was going to share this, but I feel like the Lord wants me to. And um, recently there was a sin in my life that I was like, no, no, God, I'm good. I'm good. I, this is not something I struggle with. God, I'm trusting you to provide for us financially. I'm trusting you. You know, if these things in my life work out and, 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 and finances are, are not an issue, God, then that's great. But I'm relying on you. But the more that I looked at my life and be, be, allowed God to inspect me and had an open hand and a surrender, I realized that the more I looked at it, I was crunching numbers daily, almost moments as to how much I would make. And I realized that, that was a sin of greed in my life. And that I was relying on that instead of relying and having a dependence on God. And it was evident. But I wouldn't have realized that unless I had an open-handed perspective with God in my life. And it's a momentary thing. It's a daily thing. And so the question to you really is, and think about this, what sin... Do you lean into, do you rely on to replace what God, what only God should provide? And so Asa says, Lord, there is no one besides you. 
There's no one besides you to help the mighty and those without strength. Help us, Lord, our God, for we depend on you. And then he goes on to say, in your name, we have come against this large army. So he openly communicates what his obstacle is. Here's my obstacle. And so we need to look at our lives in this and say, okay, we're not coming up against a million-man army with 300 tank-like chariots, okay? We're not coming up against that in our individual life. However, we have obstacles, we have enemies that we have to come up against daily. It could be a strained relationship that needs forgiveness. It could be an opportunity in life that's bigger than you that you need to bring before God. Say, God, I am in your name. I'm coming up against this. It could be a sin habit that needs surrendered, that needs surrendering. But many times I feel that the enemy is the cultural standards of expectations. It's the cultural standards of expectations, how we are supposed to do something, how we're supposed to look, how social media demands that we should be, where our value is. And 2 Corinthians 10.5 makes it very clear that we are to demolish arguments in every high-minded thing that raises itself up against the knowledge of God, taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That has to do with the forgiveness of that relationship. That has to do with the sin habit that you struggle with. That has to do with any opportunities or work conflicts. It has to do with cultural expectations. Take those thoughts captive because those things are enemies. Asa believed that trusting in God, trusting Yahweh, God's name, the Lord, trusting in that name was more important than the result. He didn't know what was going to happen. He didn't know what the end result of this battle was. But what we tend to do is we tend to be very result-driven and we take our energies, our obedience, our offering, whatever we're doing for God. And if the result doesn't happen the way we think it needs to, then we look inward and say, oh, it's our fault. We did it wrong. We messed up and God didn't bless us. It's all, it's all, it's all my fault. We tend to be result-driven. And then if the result works well, what do we do? Yeah, that was awesome. No, we, that's not how we should respond. We should focus on trusting God with the results and letting him be the one who owns it. You don't own the results. God owns the results. And Asa is saying very clearly, I'm coming up against this army, but I'm doing it in your name. Even if the intended result and the intended thing that is hoped for doesn't happen. He goes on to saying, Lord, you are our God. He reminds himself. How many times do we need to be reminded and remind ourselves that God is God? And he's acknowledging that relationship. He says, Lord, using that personal name for God, you are our God. And I think that the problem sometimes with our personal relationship with God is that we don't fully understand who God is. We don't fully understand who God is. And so just a little, little understanding of God, God has a variety of attributes. Love, 
mercy, peace, holiness, patience. And those things, some of those things are passed on to us. Those would be transferable attributes. And there's some things that God only holds to himself. Omnipotence, omniscience, all-knowing, omnipresence, everything being in front of him. Not him being everywhere, but everything being before him. Nothing is without him being there. And so it is, there, there are these qualities that God transfers to us because we were made in his image. These are character reflections. These are image-bearing qualities. And yet I find that culture is bent because our desire, this is something I've been learning in transformation, and I think it's absolutely true. Every single individual on this earth has a need, a singular need for love and acceptance. Absolutely. And God is the one who's supposed to provide that. Okay? So understanding that that love comes from God, that we should be wanting to reflect that image. But what I see in our culture is that our culture is so bent on the idea of love that they don't fully understand what God's love really is. I see this in Christian culture. God loves you. God loves you. I see this in even, even Christian worship music. It is seeped in in a huge way. God's love, God's love, God's love. And God is love. That's not what I'm saying. But without an understanding of who God is, we can take what we see as love and we can make it to the application of our happiness. I've had students come to me and say, but God is love. God is love. He wants me to, because of he is love, he must love me, therefore he wants me to be happy. God does not want you to be happy. Okay, that, that, that makes some people are like, I'm crossing that off that list. That, that is not a good, I'm not even gonna say he said that. But no, God does not want you to be happy. God wants you to be holy. That is what he wants. Because holiness is the core attribute of all that God is. God does not give love that contradicts his holiness. God does not give mercy that contradicts his holiness. God is is holy and that's what he wants. First Peter 1:16 says, "Be holy because I am holy." And that is God speaking. "Be holy because I am holy." That doesn't mean that he is not concerned with with you enjoying who he is and having enjoyment. It is the idea that everything goes back to holiness. Everything goes back to holiness. I believe that holiness is the only transferable attribute. Again, this is in Christ. For those who have not chosen to follow Christ, they cannot be holy. We went over that earlier. But holiness is the only transferable attribute that is independent from all the others. It's independent from all the others because its relationship is not with a person. Its relationship is with sin. It is holy from sin. Not love to a person. Not grace to a person. Therefore, it's the only standard by which we can know who God is and how he wants us to live. That is the point of what he is saying here. Asa is saying is that he acknowledges who God is and surrender of my result in light of that holiness is the product of, of what he's communicating. In your name, I've come before this large army, but you 
are our God. You are our God. Romans 8, 29 communicates very clearly. I even added 28 in there because I want it to be very obvious that we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God. Those who are called according to his purpose for those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. See, that's the whole purpose of all of these results in our life. It is the purpose for the suffering. It is the purpose for the sickness. It is the purpose for the meaningless things. It, all of these things have a purpose to make us like Jesus. That is the goal. Again, God does not want you to be happy. He wants you to be holy first. And if you pursue that happiness, obedience, those things are byproducts of choosing to be holy, choosing to be separate from sin. But that's only possible through Jesus. And so Asa goes on and he continues. He says, Lord, there is no one besides you to help the mighty and those without strength. Help us, Lord our God, for we depend on you. And in your name, we have come against this large army. Lord, you are our God. Do not let a mere mortal hinder you. It doesn't say it in these words, but it communicates the intent. Asa is talking about God's purpose. He's talking about God's purpose. Do not let a mere mortal hinder you. Some scripture on God's purpose, Romans 9, 15 and 16. says, for he tells Moses, I will, not, not someone else, I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So it does not depend on human will or effort, but on God who shows mercy. It is God who's going to fulfill his purpose. And Asa is acknowledging that. Ephesians 1.4 says that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. God has a purpose. And that purpose was defined before the world was made. I can't comprehend my God and how he could do that. But it says that he does. It says in Ephesians 2.10 that we are his creation created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time so that we should walk in them. We should walk in those good works that he has pre-purposed for us. That includes our salvation. He has purposed. God is the one who saves. It includes careers. He has pre-purposed those things. Decisions that we make. Sometimes it's easy for us to go to God with those big things, marriage, careers, children, ministry opportunities. We can go to God with those things. But sometimes it's hard to go to God with the small stuff. We kind of take a little Godship on that. We, we, we're gonna direct this God. It's okay. It's a small thing. You don't need to be bothered. But no, he wants us to go to him even with those small things because Psalms 139, 16 and 17, and actually verse 16, just communicates, your eyes saw me when I was formless. All 
my days were written in your book and planned before a single one of them began. God has all of those things in his hand and he has such tender care of every detail. Do not be too prideful that you don't ask God, that you think you can do it on your own, that you can think you can accomplish life's goals and the purpose that you have without him. And also don't think that you're down here, that not even God is going to focus on me. I have no worth. I have no value. And, and what, what Jim said earlier was true. Your worth and value is not in you because you're depraved. You're without hope in this world, but Jesus gives you hope. He gives you value. He makes you worthy. And he will fulfill his purpose in you. He will fulfill his purpose in you. All of those things that were meaningless, that, that are lost, things that are suffering, things that we don't understand God's purpose because we have this small of a viewpoint. God sees the whole picture and he is positioning everything together to draw you to himself, to draw you to who he is so that you'll follow him with a whole heart, a surrendered heart. But it doesn't just talk about God's purpose in this portion. He says, do not let a mere mortal hinder you. So who is Asa speaking of? Because he is talking about someone. I feel that he could be talking about Zerah, who is the king of the army that's attacking him. But I think also that he was even talking about himself. That he doesn't want to hinder what God is going to do. Do not let a mere mortal hinder you. Whether it's that enemy, whether it's myself, how many times do we tend to get in the way? How many times do we tend to allow our desires to get in the way or our goals or what we think needs to happen with our family or what we think needs to happen at my job, in my life? How many times do we get in the way? How long does it take us to realize that we are the hindrance to experiencing that love and acceptance? That we're, we're, we're blocking this because we keep trying to do it. We keep trying to add our effort instead of having an open hand and allowing God to be the thing that fills us allowing God to be the thing that gives us the love and acceptance, the need filled in our life. And so Asa is saying, do not let a mere mortal, do not let Zerah, do not let Asa, do not let Austin or Tim or Austin or Jim or Nicole or Austin, do not let any of us get in your way. Help us to be a part of what you're doing and allow you to work through us. This is a full and total prayer of surrender to have an open-handed lifestyle. And so I know it's weird, the name open-handedicity, but I, I wanted to make it very clear that the posture of someone, the posture of someone who is surrendered is not like this. This is the posture of someone who's victorious who won, who did something, who brought something to the table, who was obedient, who was able. That's, that's what this looks like. 
surrender, when someone says, put your hands up, you don't put them up like this. You put them up like this. Showing that there are no secrets, that there is nothing hidden, that you are open-handed to the situation. That is the posture that God wants. Someone once said, you are not created to live life with a closed fist, but with an open hand. Sherry, if you could come, um, if you could play, uh, oh, come to the altar, that would be wonderful. Um, For those of us who are choosing to follow Christ, um, how are you handling that aspect of surrender? What are you willing to let go of? Have that open hand. Are you willing to say my marriage, my career, my family, my children, my reputation, how others view me? Is it open-handed or do you live life in certain areas of your life like this? God, you can't touch it. You can't have it. We have to make a decision every day, every moment to have that posture of surrender. That is the posture that God wants in every aspect of our lives. Now, for some of you today, this may be new and strange and fearful to be thinking about living life like this because you've lived life like this for so long. And so for those who are here today that have not chosen to follow Christ, this is is going to be it's going to be difficult to understand, to live life with an open hand. But what is holding you back from surrendering your life to Jesus, from surrendering your sin, your relationship? Maybe, maybe it, it's, it's, it's your feeling of unworthy is stopping you from surrendering to Jesus. But you see, Jesus is God and he came and suffered and died and gave it all for you and rose again, showing that you can have life. So that you would have life, not to live for yourselves, but to live for him in surrender. I would like to ask if everyone could just bow their heads, close their eyes, and just in this moment, very quiet, very respectful. Um, if there is someone who is here that does not know you, Lord, if there is someone who is here who does not, has not chosen to follow Christ, but they feel that tug, they feel that pull on their life, I would ask them right now in the quietness of this moment, in the quietness of their heart, not out loud, it is not this prayer, it is not these words that chooses life over death, that saves them from the separation from God. But it is their heart and their choice of faith to place it in Jesus. So if you would like to make that decision and make that commitment in your heart to surrender your life, for the first time to God. Repeat this after me in the quietness of your heart. God, I believe that you created me for purpose and I know that my sin has separated me from you. 
I believe that Jesus died for me and that he rose again and that he is my only hope for saving me from my sin. And in this moment, I choose to follow you, Jesus, as my Lord and Savior and surrender my life to you as you gave your life for me. In Jesus' name, amen. If we can just sing the first verse in the chorus, and then pastor, you can come.